1: Hi, I'm Ben Mankiewicz, host of The Plot Thickens and Turner Classic Movies. We wanted to bring you some of our favorite moments from Peter Bogdanovich's archive. If you've been listening to The Plot Thickens, you know that Peter started recording interviews with some of classic Hollywood's greatest directors in the early 1960s. These are really the conversations where Peter learned his craft, learned how to be a movie director. The first one from April of 1972 is with Howard Hawks, the director of Red River and Rio Bravo, among so many others. At the time of this Hawks conversation, Peter was 32 years old. He'd already directed The Last Picture Show. His next movie, What's Up, Doc?, was a modern screwball comedy, drawing much of its inspiration from screwball comedies from Hollywood's golden age, like His Girl Friday and Bringing Up Baby, films directed by the master of the screwball comedy, Howard Hawks. We hope you enjoy it.
2: This is the desert outside of Palm Springs, California. It's about two hours' drive from uh, Los Angeles. Howard Hawks lives here in Palm Springs when he's not making pictures. You can hear him in the background. He's uh, riding the dunes with his son, Greg. Here he comes now.
3: Hi, Peter. Hi, how are you? Fine, thank you. You know my boy, Greg. Yeah, sure. Hi, Greg. How
2: are you? That's quite a thing you build. It is, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little bumpy, but I mean, it does the job. Yeah. Well, if you I want some... to
3: talk, let's sit in that yeah, thing, come on, shall sit. we? Yeah. Well, Pete,
2: start asking questions. All right. I know that often a whole picture, a whole idea for a picture is born from your reaction to another film or another story. Uh, isn't that the way Rio Bravo came about?
3: Yes, Rio Bravo really started because... I had seen a picture called High Noon. Where the sheriff, played by Gary Cooper... went around begging everybody to help him. I guess you all know why I'm here. I need deputies. I'll take all I can get.
2: You must be crazy coming in here to raise a posse.
3: My idea of a sheriff is a professional who doesn't want amateurs butting in and wants to do it by himself. And so, actually, real bravo started that way. And uh, it was made possible by John Wayne, just simply saying, stay out of my fight, let me handle it. You'd just be a lot of nuisance that I'd have to take care of. And that was the attitude that he had. And it led to a pretty good story. I was talking about why you hadn't asked for any new deputies. You could get some, you know. few. How about my drivers? You could use them. Suppose I got them. What did I have? Some well-meaning amateurs. Most of them worried about their wives and kids. Burdett has 30 or 40 men, all professionals. Oh, Pat, all we'd be doing is giving them more targets to shoot at. A lot of people would get hurt.
2: Marvelous thing in Rio Bravo at the end when John Wayne says to Angie Dickinson, he's all arrest you, and she says, I thought you'd never say it. Say what? And he says, say what, you know, and he said that you love me. I didn't say I loved you, I said I'd arrest you.
3: It means the same thing, you know that. You just won't say it. Oh, we're different. I'll have to get used to you.
2: The uh, characters in your pictures often say the opposite of what they mean.
3: Peter, we call that, uh, or I call it, uh, three-cushion dialogue. I believe Hemingway called it a bleak, and Noel Coward used it, and he had another name, something like Carum, for it. Yeah. And all it means is saying something, but going around the bush when you say it, and not be direct. Mm. And it's a very, it seems to be very popular, it leaves the audience to put their own interpretation of the thing, and it is works it, out very well.
2: There's a certain ambiguity to it, always. Yes, it?
3: and then also you don't feel as though you're, you're hearing the same thing all over.
2: Mm. In uh, El Dorado...
3: You know, you, before we start in on that, how about getting in some shade? It's pretty hot I'm out I'm glad there. you said it. Yeah, this is cooler and better, isn't it?
2: Yeah, a little bit. I'd like to uh, ask you some specific questions about some films, but I'd like to begin with El Dorado. There's um, a scene at the end when... Uh, John Wayne and the villain have a showdown. And um, unlike most showdowns in, in the Western, there's a respect between the two men that's very clearly defined throughout the whole picture.
3: There's a little question unanswered between us which one of us is best? That's right.
2: And uh, you did that in your first uh, talkie in the. The dawn patrol with the English flyers and the German flyers
3: having great respect for each other. Something goes through your work. Peter, that is a way of saying that somebody is good when, they, when other people have respect for them. You don't have to go to a lot of uh, foolish lengths to show that they're good. Um, when a good, somebody who's good says the other person is good, well, he automatically becomes good.
0: Oh, well, that's the man that
3: brought you down. That my friend, du? What did he say? I don't
1: know. Friend. He just wants him to have a drink. Oh, drink. <laughs> a drink, but drink.
2: <laughs> I think the best scene in oh, Dawn the Dawn Patrol, when they all sing the song, hurrah for the next man
3: who dies, you know. How would that scene evolve? Do you remember? After the war, my brother and I met a little fellow who was standing with a ring of waiters around him and he called a waiter a serval son of a bitch, and I rather liked him for that. And anyway, they knocked him down, and uh, I'm a waiter hit him, and my brother hit the waiter, and pretty soon there was a mess, and we were gonna go to the jail. And I said to the cop, Are you gonna say that little guy gave you that eye? And he said, can you get rid of him? And I said, sure. And he taught my brother the song.
2: This is your brother, Kent.
3: Yeah, so we remembered it, and I did it, and then was terribly surprised to find out we'd stolen Rudyard Kipling's poem. Nobody told me. Oh, it's a, it's a poem by it's Kipling. It's a poem by Kipling put to a Yale song. Did you get in trouble? Thank God, no.
2: It's a great song. It's
3: a good song. We oh. meet meets the sounding rafters. The walls all around us are bare. The walls all around us are bare. They echo the fields of laughter. They echo the fields of laughter. It seems all the dead are there. It seems all the dead are there. So stand by your glasses. Steady this world is a world of lies. So stand by I don't know why I can steal and remember all the lines.
2: <laughs> the other thing you do in Don Patrol that you did in a lot of your pictures is that you never really show the outside world. In other words, they go off to have some drinks and go out in bars, but you don't really show that. You only stay within the sort of enclosed world of mm-hmm. that is their life. Well, why did you do that? Is that a sort of a, to give a feeling of of unity to the story or just to keep it claustrophobic, because you did that in Only Angels Have Wings, too. You never really
3: go away from that You've got area. people are watching. Why get them out in some strange you know, strange place? I don't believe in that. Not if you've got a good story. If you've got a bad one, that's the place to go. Just stay where the action, mm-hmm. just stay in town. Stay wherever it is. What the hell did you do in the last picture? Yeah, I know, I didn't ever leave that town. Mm-hmm. You never went off to war, you never went to anything.
2: No, no we had a scene where they, <coughs> go off, they go off to Mexico, and we took it out because it didn't need it. it. Didn't seem to me to be right.
1: Hey, we go to Mexico. Be back sometime Monday. You reckon to pick up and
2: make it? Yeah, mind how much money you got? Oh, 30 bucks, about. Well, I got 40. We can make her
1: in that. Come on. OK.
2: On the set, do you uh, do you design your set? Your um, do you design your shots or plan out your sequences uh, in any way other than in your mind?
3: No, we never make a plan or anything. Just I get, I get a look at a set uh, a few days before going into it, and by the time I've gone into it, I know exactly what the sequence is going to look like, where the camera is going to be, and uh, in general, and the, where the cuts are going to be, and everything. I find it almost impossible to make a sequence unless I know ahead of time what it's going to be like. Mm-hmm.
2: And that, uh, doesn't, that uh, knowing of it isn't something that you write
3: down or figure out on paper, it's just something that oh, just something. You, you see in your head? Uh, in a picture called Atari we had a, an idea and, and uh, I could see a net going over a tree where there was a thousand monkeys in the tree. And I asked uh, the, man, the special effects man if he could do that. And he said, you really mean what, what you're saying? And I said, yes. And he spent $40,000 before we started the picture, trying to make a net go over a tree that had a 1,000 monkeys in it. And uh, by the time we got ready to shoot it down in Africa, he was a shaking wreck. He postponed it five days because he could feel a whisper of wind. He he didn't want any wind. And it worked beautifully the very first time.
1: I'm going to shoot that net over the tree. There are monkeys in the tree, at least 500 of them. You worry about catching the monkeys, okay? That's your job. I'll be standing right here watching you.
3: It worked. Pockets, it worked.
2: Didn't you have something similar in Rio Bravo where you wanted to blow up that uh, house where all the villains were at the end and the first time you blew it up something went
3: wrong? Oh, well, the first time we blew it up we had a great big charge and they had a lot of colored paper and it looked like a Japanese fireworks going off. We had to do it all <laughs> over again. And then we had to build the place again. and uh, But that worked out all right finally. Nobody knew that that was going to go up in the air like no. that.
1: Can't you throw them any farther than you have Ben? Of course I can't if you want to blow the whole place down. That's a general idea. Throw it!
3: That got him! That took the fight out of him! Look at him quit!
1: We'll be right back after this break.
0: That's A-N-G-I dot com.
2: Your pictures are darker than most people's films. The the lighting is darker. Even the comedies, which uh, most people light... Lighten you you, uh, you you make the
3: darkest comedies. You'll find that the backgrounds are darker, but the, the light on the faces is, is just about the same. Mm-hmm. That's just a method of lighting is all. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the ability to use lighting where you can see the faces of the people, and um, yet you don't have to get it, that full light that is usually associated with comedies, which isn't exactly true. Mm. Well, it's interesting that you know bringing up baby,
2: particularly the the, the chase and the night after the bone and the leopard, is uh, lit you know almost like a drama.
3: Well, it is a drama. It's a drama that happens to be funny. That's all. <laughs> they um, were chasing a um, leopard, and that should be fairly dramatic, even though it's funny. I can't see a thing. Neither can I. Susan, are you sure you saw something moving here? Because I can't. Well, Susan, where are you? Here I am. Susan, this is no time to be playing squat tag. I'm not playing.
2: The dramas deal with men in danger, and the comedies really deal with a a man in an insane world, because the pace of your comedy is so fast, and there's something almost demented about the the world that the man finally finds himself in, particularly, for instance, bringing a baby. Catherine Hepburn's world is totally daffy, and... uh, and the 20th century, the, the, you picture the
3: world of the theater as one of almost insanity. There's no way of, uh, at all of setting up a criterion for a thing like that. You read a story, you think it's funny, and you think it'd be fun to tell it, so you tell it. And it isn't done consciously at all. You once said to me that there was one thing
2: wrong with bringing up Baby, and that was that there wasn't any character in it who was, who was sane. You, uh, there was you're...
3: no sanity. Everybody was rather insane, and I thought the picture suffered because of that. And uh, never did it again, and always had sanity to show how insane the other people were. There was no measure of, uh, in bringing a baby. Other stories uh, worked out much better because of uh, having perfectly normal people. That's the only way that you can show abnormality is by having a
1: contrast.
3: I've made a mess of everything, haven't I? Oh
1: no, oh, no! Oh, I was
3: so happy when I found the bone this morning. Oh, David, if I could only make you understand. You see,
0: all that happened happened because I was trying to keep you near me, and I just did anything that came into my head.
2: Well, let's talk a little bit about his girl Friday. I know how you have all that overlapping dialogue that you did earlier in. Uh, well, even in 20th century, I suppose it was the first place you really did it, isn't it? And then in bringing
3: up Baby. Well, it was particular. Uh, His Girl Friday, the dialogue was particularly adaptable to that. And I would noticed that people talked and talked over one another, and especially people who talk fast and who are in a quick argument or quick description. So we wrote the dialogue in a way that Left the end of the sentence so you didn't need it in the beginning of a sentence, and we just kept them overlapping. Mm -hmm. And any new actor that came in took them a couple days to get oriented and going. But everybody put up with that, and then it worked beautifully from that time on. It's a very natural way. Oh, yeah.
1: Listen, I made a great reporter out of you, Hildy, but you won't be half as good on any other paper, and you know it. We're a team. That's what we are. You need me, and I need you, and the paper needs all Americans.
2: Did you have to buy the um, rights to the front page from Hughes? Yes. In order to make it? Yes. The original front page, the movie, is supposedly not very good. Is that right? It's not as
3: fast as yours, or or even. Uh, it's, I've just heard. Oh, not- I don't know, but- at the time that it was made, uh, newspaper men, for them, that was a milestone in pictures. You know, it was a—they liked it. And it got great reviews and was said to be so terribly fast, so that when I was making—got about halfway through, and three or four newspaper men who had come out talked about the speed of the first one, I fixed up a little thing work on— uh, Two projection machines. We ran part of the old one and part of the mine, and then part of the old one and part of the mine, and they said, "Holy oh, smokes, the old one's slow." So we had accomplished what we wanted. and that was to make a pass. What? Well, I got a disc I want to. Move.
1: Never mind what. Thing. what the deuce do you want? Oh, hello, Bruce. Is that, no, no, never mind the Chinese earthquake. For heaven's sake. Billy, I just want to ask uh, you one question. Bruce, how did you get out of jail? Well, not through any help of yours. Now listen, your, buddy, oh, you can't I'm come in here. We're busy. I had to wire Albany for Your
2: comedies years. make fun of the professional man, where, you know, Cary Grant is a paleontologist in bringing up baby and, and a scientist in monkey business, and Rosalind Russell is a newspaper woman. In a sense, you make fun of uh, another kind of profession. You know. Well, that is uh,
3: that, uh, that comes from not choosing an obviously comic character. We've done that a couple of times. We did with Cary Grant in uh, bringing up a baby, but... Uh, at the same time, he was uh, a professional, professional, uh, but so many times you do it just because it gets away from the usual comedy viewpoint of where they pick an obvious character and say, this man's going to be funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you start off with two strikes against you. You're a whole lot better starting as Cary Grant did. In, Oh, I was a male war bride as a very serious uh, French officer yeah. who walked in and somebody needed said we need an interpreter and Carrie said you don't need an interpreter I can speak English Sergeant and uh, then his troubles came because of his meeting Anne Sheridan and that becomes then that, then that becomes a comedy. Mm-hmm. Oh. I would like to know the details of my assignment in order to know what equipment to draw from the quartermaster. See if they have a spare head. And I may as well warn you, bubble mouth. I'm going to carry a revolver and a trench knife. And if you so much as lay a finger on me this trip, you're going back to France minus a lot of parts you probably value.
2: Um, which of your uh, films do you, do you think, of all the many films you've made, do you think
3: you, you like best or you remember
2: with the most affection?
3: I think probably Scarface, we made it in a time when uh, we couldn't borrow anybody from a studio because we were independents. We went into a a little dust-covered studio and opened it up, and we were an entity unto ourselves, and we made a picture. And uh, almost everybody in the crew acted in it, and uh, there was no one in, in in it that came from, had any prominence at all. Muni was at the theater at 39th Street in New York playing an old man. And Devorac was a chorus girl at Metro-Goldwyn. And George Raft, I saw at a prize fight. And we just collected actors and went ahead and made it. And the whole thing was a challenge and a lot of fun, especially to have it turn out very well and become a kind of a legend. Yeah, little boy.
1: Easy do, eh? For just standing outside and listening to a gun go off. Since, when are we going to get some more? We get plenty. This business is just waiting for some guy to come and run it right. And
3: I got ideas. Listen, little boy. In this business, there's only one law you got to follow to keep out of trouble. Do it first. Do it yourself, and keep on doing it.
2: In Scarface, all the faces of the gangsters really looked like gangsters. They didn't look like extras, you know. They weren't movie faces at all.
3: Property men and wardrobe men things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody played a part. Yeah. Were you in it? I didn't see
2: you in it. I was the man on
3: the bed that was spread eagled in the form of a cross and just with his underwear on. Really? Mm-hmm. With the car lock? No. And on those X-Marts, the spot dissolves. Oh.
2: The restaurant scene when he gets the machine gun, there's an exhilaration for that when he uses the machine gun. There's that great line, Get out of the way, Johnny, I'm going to spit.
3: Yeah, that's one of the greatest lines in I'm going to write my name all over this town with in big letters. Hey, stop him, somebody. Get out of my way, Johnny, I'm going to spit. Muni didn't think he could play that kind of a character. But he was such a great actor that he could play anything. Mm-hmm. He wore a special padded coat. He walked on planks this high through all the scenes. He was up with the small men. George Ratt was small. What is his name, was small? Perkins. Perkins. I never put him with a big man. Just to make him look bigger? Sure, I had to make him look tall strong and tough. Yeah. He's completely sedentary, you know. He can't do anything. Where'd the
2: idea come from that, that uh, Muni starts whistling when he's going to kill somebody?
3: We knew we were going to use the record, Crusoe records and the famous operas and things, so we decided to use that piece. And it's a very easy one to go with, and so we just put whistling with it. Mm-hmm. What record thing do you mean? You mean when he breaks the records? No. Uh, what was the music that was playing when— At the beginning? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Better. Something like that, yeah. Just something like it, because I can't stand to <laughs> At the end of Scarface, um,
2: there's a dialogue. Piece. I think she says, why didn't you shoot? He says, you're me, I'm you. It's always been that way, something like that. And uh, hes you give the impression that even though he's trapped in this room, all alone, I mean, trapped in this room, he's obviously not going to live through this.
3: And doing the final scene in the picture, Muni. He was going to play the scene where he came downstairs and was yellow. Like an actor being yellow. Not like, not play it for honesty. And I uh, talked to him about it and he did it the same way. So I went off and started a game of poker. And he began to get more and more fidgety and Finally he came over and said, when are we gonna do the scene? I said, whenever you decide to do it, the way it should be done. About five minutes later he came over, he said, okay, you know, I'll do it. And he really played the devil out of it. No! Don't, don't shoot! Don't shoot, Garrino! Look at I'm all alone. I, I got no guns. See, uh, give me a break will you, Garino. Break? Who would you ever give a break to? Look at I, I, I got nobody, I'm all alone
1: little boy's gone, boy's
3: hundred boy's My steel shutters don't
2: work. Shut up! How did you um, decide, what
3: made you decide to go into movies? I worked uh, during summer vacation at uh, Paramount Studio. And it, uh, they interested me. And I got started in them and stayed in them after I got out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, was there, Were there
2: any particular people, uh, any particular directors or writers, I would say directors probably, who influenced you in the early days? Or well, I familiar? worked with
3: a man who was a great influence, Marshall Nealon. He made uh, a great many of the early Mary Pickford pictures, and he made uh, some, he had a very fertile, inventive mind and a great sense of humor. And almost everything that I learned about comedy, I learned, uh, began to learn from him. He had a great deal of influence on me later on.
2: Hmm. He was your main influence then in, in, in directing?
3: Yes. Lately, uh, in latter years, uh, my favorite directors have been men that I could go to see their pictures and learn something, like John Ford, Billy Wilder. Uh, Victor Fleming, who made *Gone with the Wind*, who is now dead, and uh, I enjoyed very much working with Ernst Lubitsch, and I learned a lot from
2: him. Did you work with? Oh, you worked with him at Paramount.
3: I mean. I worked with him at Paramount as more or
2: less a producer. What would you say was uh, your definition of good direction?
3: I think so, somebody who doesn't annoy you. <laughs> uh, there are very few of them that can do that tell you a whole story and not annoy you. The best thing to do is to tell a story as though you're seeing it. Tell it, you know, from your eyes and let the audience see it exactly the way they would if they were there. The camera, we rarely get the camera in those strange places. Just tell it normally. Well, thank you very much. That's it.
1: If you've been enjoying The Plot Thickens, why not give us a rating or review? And tell a friend about us, too. We really appreciate it. See you next time.